Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Welcome to Heaven's Gate. Imagine that you are a member of Heaven's Gate. Just for a moment, consider it. You cut your hair, you change your name, the whole thing. And the one rule that's more important than the others is this. In Heaven's Gate, the only relationship that counts is your relationship to tea and dough, and through them, to God. All your attention must go into that relationship. Say, goodbye forever to everyone else. That force focus that is demanded, it works like blinders on a horse. It has the effect of keeping you and your fellow members devoted to the group. But when Bonnie Nettles T, the co-founder of Heaven's Gate, died in 1985, her partner Doe was at a loss. And he did something odd. He sent everyone home. Just for a bit, just for a break, while he planned their next move. He let them take their blinders off. On today's episode, members of Heaven's Gate get a taste of freedom, and then the group turns a corner to a darker time and a point of no return. This is Heaven's Gate, Episode 6, The Choice. I'll tell you who I am. T and Doe, whatever they want to call us. Whether or not you believe is up to you. You, you. We all have to deal with demons. We're trying to teach you how to prepare yourself. You are members of the next level. The next level. I fell in love with her when I first saw her. Former group member Frank Lyford is talking about his girlfriend from 40 years ago, Erica Ernst. And she was at first very shy. Uh, we met, I think, a friend of mine knew a friend of hers. Frank is in his 60s now, lean face, kind. He works as a life coach in Kansas, and he tells people that he's been to hell and back. So he's that much more ready to help you on your own journey, whatever it is. And as far as Frank has come, he's still wistful about Erica and their early days in love. She just had a really pretty smile and nice dimples and uh, pretty blue eyes and blonde hair. And I was smitten. They met in the early 70s. I was 18, 
and she was 15, and she told me she was 16, and I had a, had a motorcycle, so she was enthralled with that. So um, we traded phone numbers and went on from, from there. When I think about Erica, then what I think about is just how I felt in her presence. I enjoyed being me in her presence. Erica's an amazing human being, loving, sensitive, compassionate, very bright, intuitive, just a joy to be around. We, we did love each other very much. We were contemplating moving in together, but we had been together for about three years. In 1975, Frank and Erica heard about the new group that was forming that promised UFOs and eternal life. And it spoke to them both. But there was a catch. Beginning that journey meant ending the journey they were on together. We had talked to each other about we're not going to be together anymore. Are you okay with this? And I was mixed. And I told her I was mixed about it, but that this opportunity was something that I didn't want to miss out on. So we just approached it as taking things one step at a time, and we'll decide each moment as we go forward. I don't think it really sunk in deeply that this would be the end of our relationship. But it was. It had to be. Because for the group, human relationships aren't just forbidden. They're dangerous. Tiendo drilled into their followers that human emotions were not allowed on the next level. You could not be in love and get to the next level, period. It was recommended or strongly advised that we not spend time with each other because it would only lead to temptation and further interference by the influences. The organization assigned Frank and Erica different check partners. They traveled separately. They both tamped down their feelings, hoping to suffocate what was once so alive between them. You know, my frame of mind throughout the whole classroom was toe the line, stay under the radar, behave, follow the procedures, follow the rules. And even though my thoughts at times were filled with doubt and questioning, everything in the cult was controlled. All of our emotions were under the watchful eye of our self-policing, following procedure every second of the day, and allowing myself to express the feeling that I was feeling was such an uncommon thing. And they went on like this for years. Until 1985, when Doe suddenly the only leader of Heaven's Gate sent everyone home for a short visit while he regrouped. 
Some of the cult members had not seen or spoken to their family and friends for years. And for Frank and Erica, this would be their first reminder in a decade of the people they once allowed themselves to be. So since Erica and I were both visiting Calgary, because that's where our parents lived, and that's who we were visiting, Doe decided we should travel together as check partners. Of course, the understanding was that that's all we were. When we stopped for a layover and were sitting on the same bench in kind of a secluded area while we waited for our flight, and I just felt an overpowering love for Erica and reached out and gave her a hug. Erica's immediate reply and response was, I had asked Doe if I could give you a hug, and he said yes. That was the first time we had touched in years. Let's run away together. That's what I felt. If she had spoken up and suggested it, it wouldn't have taken much to convince me that, okay, we've had enough of this. Let's, let's go do something else. When did you see your son? September of 1985. Remember Nancy Brown, David's mother, who set up a whole network of families to try to get information out of the group? Well, Nancy's son went home too. Oh my gosh. What a sh- shock, a wonderful shock. <laughs> he wants to come and see us. He, he didn't want to be met at the airport. He took the airporter over to Berkeley and rang the doorbell, and I go down the stairs, open the door, and there he is after 10 years. He looked a little older, had a little less hair. He was quite slender, and but he was as happy to see me as I was him. It's just like a thousand butterflies took flight, you know, in celebration. It was just a wonderful moment, and big hugs. Dinner, we decided we're going to give David a birthday dinner to celebrate 10 years of birthdays that we didn't get to have with him. And I made a big birthday cake with candles on it. So we had, we had a wonderful time together. <laughs> we really did. And it really does seem like David is having a good time. There were tense moments, though. Like when Nancy's ex-husband and her son Robert sort of pressed David for answers about the group. And when this thing came along, it was like, this is what I've been waiting for. It's like somebody sounded the trumpet. <laughs> if you can't hear that, David tells them the group was what he was waiting for in his life. It hit him like the sound of trumpets. In this video, you can see on the 
often strained faces and the uneasy silences, that a decade is a long time to turn your human feelings off. And when you finally try to turn that faucet back on again, the water's gonna run brown for a while. Even as they celebrate in the video, you see another scene where David's in the kitchen, twisting the phone cord around his finger as he makes a call to another Heaven's Gate member. Well, I gotta take off today. Yeah. Gotta plan to catch a second He's barely home a day, and it's already time for him to go back to the group. And he leaves the same afternoon as that phone call. Did you think you were going to see him again? Did you think this is going to become more regular? Oh, I, of course, I hope so. You know, I really hope so. And I, I knew that T had died earlier that year. And I told him that I knew about it, and I was very sorry. And it must be very sad for him and his his group members. And he said yes. And so I said, I would like you to promise me that if your life is in danger or you're seriously ill or something like that, that you would arrange for somebody to contact me. I, you promised me that, and he did. It was a promise that Nancy thinks David tried to keep, but that would be years later. Was that the last time you saw your son? Yes. Coming up, Doe watches an American tragedy unfold and finds lessons for Heaven's Gate. Hello. Hello. Yeah, this is Lieutenant Lynch. May I help you? Yeah, there's 75 men around our building and they're shooting at us in Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel? Yeah, tell them there are children and women in here and to call it off. All right, all right. Uh, hello? I hear gunfire. Oh, shit. That's after the break. We're back. It's April 19th, 1993. But David Koresh and his followers are still holed up as they have been for the past 51 days. Bonnie, were there any indications that this D-Day was... David Koresh is the charismatic leader of the Branch Davidian cult, an offshoot of an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist. Now, Koresh was born... Vernon Howell, but he calls himself Koresh because it's another word for Messiah. His name's Koresh, according to Scripture. Revelation says he has a new name. He has a name that no one knows but he himself. His name is the Word of God. He believes he's a savior prophesied in Revelations. You know, since 1985, he's been planning a battle uh, just to prove that uh, his apocalyptic views and, on religion are, are correct. When Christ comes again, you saw it. He's going to bring a... And it has seven seals. Koresh is not a monastic leader. He drinks, he has sex, and he's taken as many as 15 wives. He brags about how some of them are underage. He's God, and he can do what he wants. The president should come and talk to me a little bit instead of going over to the Vatican. What would you learn? They'd learn a lot, wouldn't they? Koresh is now holed up with his wives and children and followers in a complex of buildings outside Waco, Texas, 
about 100 people just waiting around till the end of the world, which they expect any day. The FBI also believes that uh, Koresh, over the last year or two, uh, had started stockpiling explosives and, and different devices so that they could build their own explosives. Koresh did not have explosives, it would turn out. Just a whole lot of guns and semi-automatic rifles converted to fully automatic. The FBI and the ATF had tried to raid the complex to search for weapons and to keep Koresh from perhaps harming his people. But Koresh had been tipped off. So he and his followers had time to prepare and to fight back. Guns. Yeah, I'll meet you at the doorstep any day. You know, and somebody will get hurt. If you want to keep playing that game, somebody's going to get hurt. Which is how this standoff begins. The longest in American history. The FBI smuggles microphones into the cult inside milk cartons for the kids. And agents can hear Koresh preparing to set fire to the buildings from the inside. On day 51, the government launches a final assault. What we're seeing is an M60 uh, combat engineering vehicle. It's uh, been injecting tear gas. It's also rammed straight into... What, what you're seeing there is the front door to the Branch Davidian compound. And, and look at it. It's going right into the front door. As you can see on your screen, there is a great deal of smoke coming out of the building. Let's go to Mike okay. Caps. We can also see some flames there now. Mike, what can you tell us? What can you well, see? Now we have a very large-scale fire breaking out on what must be the south side, right near the front side of this building. This is a, this is a roaring fire here. This, uh, this, <laughs> this uh, fire is really burning out of control here. Well, and we also have to remind viewers that uh, water has been turned off. Well, as you can see, the parts of the building have collapsed. The fire has indeed engulfed the vast majority of this compound that has been the Bonnie, site. the entire roof is gone. The entire roof is gone. In the wreckage, they find 75 bodies, 19 of them children. Some have bullet wounds to the head, including Koresh himself. What we're seeing is basically, um, uh, you might call it the pushing of a self-destruct button. The whole country watched this unfold on the news. Your daughter had a number of stories uh, to report about her training. Yes. Can you tell us about that? Well, um, she was taught to commit suicide, actually, by uh, Vernon Howell, uh, now known as David Koresh. Frank Lyford was in Heaven's Gate when Waco went up in flames. Doe is very impacted by watching Waco unfold, and Doe saw that as a potential template in how we might, quote, leave, end quote. Doe was the opposite of Koresh in some ways. He was celibate and physically gentle. Koresh took wives as young as 12 and beat children with a wooden spoon. Still, Doe saw something to envy in Waco. Doe was wondering whether uh, his students would be as committed as those students were to David Koresh, even though he didn't believe in David Koresh was teaching. Uh, but he, he re respected the students staying with it, even to, with the threat of death. And it's after Waco, in this atmosphere, that Heaven's Gate and the message that Doe put out there departed drastically from the monastic, healthy lifestyle, beam-me-up prophecies 
of Heaven's Gate in the 70s. Here's Ben Zeller, the author and historian of all things Heaven's Gate. He pulls out a box full of Heaven's Gate artifacts. They spent almost a year on the road. They produced dozens of of different posters, of different advertisements. They took out ads in local newspapers. They tried to have one last massive media blitz to try to get their message out there because they thought the end was coming. They were proselytizing again, out on the road again, pushing literature on potential recruits. So the, the question is, would the people who joined in the 90s have known they were joining an apocalyptic group, a group which thought the end of the world was coming and this was their only chance off? And my answer is an unequivocal yes, because I'm looking at, at their posters and their advertisements. The main one, which they put in USA Today, the title is Last Chance to Advance Beyond Human. There was this sense that everything was coming to an end. UFO cult resurfaces with a final offer. Uh, This was their poster for March 16th, 1994. This is the final offer. It is the only chance you're going to have. And they say explicitly on this, they're going to leave. And this was in 90, so there's internet now. This is a Usenet post. So Usenet is a bulletin board system on the internet. It's text-based, so it's basically like a... uh, uh, like an early version of a uh, of a news forum sort of thing. And Doe uh, posts several times to Usenet. Uh, there's one, two, three, four, five, about seven or eight posts over the uh, period of 1995. Doe would post them in Star Trek and Star Wars user groups, thinking that they'd be most receptive to the message, that they'd be the ones interested in joining the class. He brings up this question of how are they going to get out of their bodies? So they know they have to get to outer space somehow. And they're beginning to think that they're not going to do it in bodily form. They're going to think that uh, they think that they're going to have to lay down their human bodies and get out of them somehow. So he says this. He says, and I'm going to quote him here. How is this laying down of our bodies to occur? If you do recognize me and choose to look to me for guidance, I would recommend that you purchase firearms, get comfortable using them, or partner with someone who can. In this day and time, the authorities make no bones about their need to protect the public from dangerous radicals like us. He says there's no need to be submissive to their wishes. And then here's the kicker, here's the the part at the end, quote, our choosing to not be submissive, coupled with being armed, pretty much addresses the laying down of our bodies question. And you can clearly see the way in which he's responding to Waco, the way in which he's looking around. And in the years surrounding Waco, uh, it's not an isolated incident. Uh, There's the rise of some of these right-wing paramilitary groups. Uh, There's the Montana Freemen uh, with a standoff in Montana. There's a whole bunch of sort of radical religious groups that come into conflict with the government, none of which have a theology remotely similar to Heaven's Gate. But it's the same idea that if you don't submit to the government, they're going to kill you. And that's going to answer their, their, their question. That's going to solve the problem. Along with the darker message of the group comes a darker doe. A doe that Frank Lyford will become scarily familiar with. Doe became even more controlling than he had been. He was so worried about him, his own performance because he didn't have a check partner. And he became, in my view, a little bit psychotic. And I think that increased over time. 
to the point where he lost his objectivity and began to entertain ways of uh, forcing the authorities to kill the class members. That's when he began talking about buying firearms and learning to shoot them with the thought that it would end in our demise. And to me, that was a red, red flag. Red flag, of course, is an understatement of enormous proportions. And Frank says Doe became more manipulative with the class and more cruel. One day within the first three and four months after he died, we were meeting and he was taking questions from us. And I raised my hand, I think, to make an observation. And I spoke in a very deep voice. And uh, his response was not reply to me, but to mimic my voice. He was conveying to me that I was expressing a masculine voice. And then my emotional response in, in response to his mimicking me was to feel humiliated and ashamed for having expressed my masculine essence in, in a way. And uh, I also felt this deep-seated anger of who is he to tell me how I should express, how I should speak. And yet I couldn't speak. Over time, because I didn't feel safe to express, I gradually wasn't able to speak fluidly and developed a stutter. And um, it, it impacted every spoken expression I had, you know, whether it was in the class or at work or any time. I think what that represented to me is that I'm not allowed to be me. I'm not safe to express who I am. And that symptom of not feeling safe expressed in a stutter. And I've had symptoms of it ever since, and I haven't been really free of it. The bullying and the control, the talk of guns and last chances, you could chalk all of that up to bluster. The growing bravado of a guy trying to keep hold over the people who follow him. But it became more than talk. And the members of Heaven's Gate were asked to make a choice harder than any before. Right after the break. Thank you. 
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. We're back. Now, Doe's renewed focus on the apocalypse fuels the group's recruiting efforts in the 90s, and he sends members out all across America to recruit new converts for what he's thinking of as a final harvest. Here's Ben Zeller. The road trip starts in early 1994, and they have, for Heaven's Gate, relative success. They're able to attract a dozen or so people, basically, uh, in between February and August of 1994. And then Doe calls everyone back to the West, the part of the country where the cult spent many early days. And they decide that they are going to take a gig, they're going to take a job, earn some sticks, to use their language, uh, testing some camping equipment. So they go to San Clemente, and they're camping out in this warehouse. So they're actually testing tents. So they've set up, to, to set the scene here, you have to imagine a warehouse filled with tents. And so they're all camping in these tents, and they're doing sort of structural testing on the tents and make sure they're not falling apart. So they're all camped out in a warehouse, and Doe gathers them all together. They sit together as they would when Doe would lead a meditation or give a lesson. But this time, Doe asks the group a question. And Doe says to them, how would people feel if we have to choose to lay down our bodies? The vague talk of last chances and final offers from the recruitment material becomes very specific and very black and white. Doe is not talking about a violent gunfight with the government like Waco. He's talking about ending things by their own hands. New recruit Jason Bartell was at that meeting. At the time, his group name was Carlin. I'd only been in the group maybe two, three weeks. With everyone in the room, he just asked each of us individually if we'd be willing to, to voluntarily you know, end our life in this world. Devoted member Sawyer was there, too. And he described the process. Uh, he said that we would uh, drink a barbiturate that would put ourselves to sleep, put our body vehicles to sleep you know, permanently. It was just that simple that they investigated it, where they could get the, the, the drugs. But, uh, and he, but he wanted to know if anybody had reservations, and he wanted to hear from everybody. So he just went one by one. Ben Zeller again. We can't forget that this was their family. This was a family sitting down and having a family meeting and each individual member saying, yes, I'm willing to consider that I may have to choose to leave my vehicle. To commit suicide, as we would say. Now, it wasn't firm yet. He wasn't saying we're doing it. He's saying, would you consider it? But this is not quietly searching your soul for the answer. This is being put on the spot, in front of all the people to whom you're trying to prove your worth and goodness, asked by the man 
who you truly believe is the closest thing to God there is. This is pressure. I don't want to say that Heaven's Gate members were, were brainwashed. I don't want to say that they were uh, mind-controlled. But I think we do have to admit that like any group, there was peer pressure. And like any group, uh, there were intergroup dynamics from people who had been there at this point for decades and were pretty committed to it. And were being asked right there, are you willing to take this final step? And the pressure would have been immense. One said immediately at that meeting, they had a new one, new member, said he had reservations, definitely wasn't in it for that. And, you know, Dota said, well, I appreciate your, your honesty. And, uh, and he made arrangements for him to leave the class the next day. I said I had no reservations. Although, in my mind, I was pretty much like two people. I was a little bit fearful. I, I felt a little bit fearful of taking it upon myself to lose my vehicle. But I felt like my mind was there enough to where I would have done it if it was right at that moment. But I don't know, you know, maybe I would have, you know, copped out at the last minute. He singled me out just in that he said, well, you know, Carlin here has only been here a couple of weeks. And, you know, we're... I'm asking a pretty big thing here. And I just said, yeah, I, I I can't remember how I worded it. I just said, well, I know that this is where I want to be and this is what I have to do. And I said, I I think that I can I can do that. I said, I am pretty new at this, but I, I said that I didn't think that I had a problem with it. Um, but of course, that's easier said than done. You know, people can say all kinds of things. It really came down to you either were there or you weren't. You you wanted to be there, you didn't want to be there. That was the bottom line. And I think Doe was sort of forcing a lot of our hands by by bringing, bringing that up in that meeting as an example. You know, we're getting down to the nitty gritty here, people. This is, this is what we're all about. And you either want to see this through to the end or, or maybe this isn't the place for you. It didn't freak me out or anything like that. It didn't make me realize how how serious the endeavor was, that this isn't just like, you know, you're not just going to hang around and watch Star Trek for the rest of your days with this group, that there is there is an end goal in sight with it, and it's it's not to stay in the human condition in, indefinitely kind of thing. To me, it's interesting that Doe gave everyone, obviously, close to three years to think about that option. And obviously, they must have talked about it probably, you know, more and more leading up to what they actually did until they eventually decided to do it. Remember Frank and Erica? We, we did love each other very much. At San Clemente, Erica said yes. Yes, she would lay down her life for the group. She would remain devoted to the very end. Well, for me, I... I just wish people could understand how it was instant recognition for me when I met Tindo in Walport over 21 years ago, and, and there was never a doubt in my mind. And I know that for some, I may have caused some suffering, or this, this choice that I made may have caused some suffering. I just wish that people out there could understand how much we feel and know this is real. This is not a fantasy. But in 1994, in San Clemente, Frank didn't give an answer to Doe's question about suicide. He wasn't even there. 
the changes in the cult and in Doe, had shaken his faith. But something else he experienced changed him even more profoundly. She was the best employer you would want. He got a job. A plain old job. Members of Heaven's Gate had always worked some to earn extra cash for the cult, but this job at a software company was different. Frank had a boss who really liked him, who believed in him. She gave me full reign in designing the software that I, the way I wanted to design it, and gave me tremendous credit when things went well and we had many happy clients. And then contrast that with returning to the cult environment every night in which creativity was suppressed, uniqueness was not allowed, you were a cog in the wheel. Everything was for the benefit of the group at large and no personal recognition, no creativity, and it was undeniable I had to leave. Doe, at first, was of the mind that he could talk some sense into me and said, it's rotten out there. You sure you want to go out there? And uh, how I was throwing away my opportunity to graduate to the next level. And uh, with everything that he said, all I could do is return to this visceral gut knowing, in spite of anything my intellectual process might have said, it kept saying I could no longer be here. No matter what, I have to leave the cult. I have to go out and be who I am supposed to be, whatever that is. Once it was clear that I had made up my mind, he ended the meeting. So we, uh, we arranged for me to uh, buy a plane ticket to wherever I wanted to go, and I chose to return to Calgary to my parents. And uh, we arranged for a flight out that same day, and I packed a duffel bag uh, with, you know, other classmates hovering about to make sure I was not breaking any procedures or taking something I wasn't supposed to. And Doe said goodbye and gave me a hug, and uh, Sorodi and Soyodi drove me to the airport, and I boarded a plane. And I remember flying over San Diego, circling over, headed toward LAX, and feeling higher than a kite, that I was free. I felt this tremendous freedom and this tremendous weight lift off me, even though I also felt trepidation, because it was completely unknown, but it was also giddy with the unknown. Next time on Heaven's Gate. Gail was Gail. Oh, Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plane.
One day she had a big bag in, in, coming out of her bedroom, and I said, Gail, what's in the bag? She said, all my sweaters. I'm going to get rid of all my sweaters. I said, oh, okay, whatever. And I think that was the first sign, but I didn't see the sign because I never knew she was in this cult. Hello, honey. Hello. Oh, when you coming home? She was Apple White's puppet, you know? He pulled the strings and they did what he wanted them to do. Uh, Doe was really upset. And uh, he said, uh, he said, I've done, I've done a horrible thing. He says, take me to the police. And Liv Odie and Jan Odie and I, we said, no way. He said, we'll take care of it. Heaven Skate is produced by Stitcher in collaboration with Pineapple Street Media. Our team includes Ann Hepperman, Barry Finkel, Diane Hodson, Josh Gwynn, Osa Secker, Jess Hackle, Dan Tabirsky, Peter Clowney, Casey Holford, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Max Linsky, and Chris Bannon. Special thanks to Ben Zeller. I'm your host, Glenn Washington. And we want to hear your stories. Email us at feedback at heavensgate.show and we'll gather some of them up for a future episode or leave us a voicemail at 619-354-0180. This show deals with some difficult topics like suicide and it can be hard for people to talk about suicide or get help if they're in danger but all of us want you to know that help is available. One excellent resource It's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's free, it's confidential, it's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The number is 1-800-273-8255. But just remember, 1-800-273-TALK. Whatever we believe to be true is true. Stitcher.